Okay, we're going to open up the scriptures together now, and um, we're in the book of 1 Samuel. So you might want to hit pause, grab your Bible, and um, open it up to the book of 1 Samuel. If you've been following along with our daily Bible reading, you would have read some of this this week. Uh, if you haven't been, I want to encourage you, do do follow along. Uh, why don't you scroll down on our website, find the little bit that says we're reading the Bible in two years, and, and click join in. You'll find another page where you can open up a, a PDF of um, the Bible readings for, for this year. We're in year one right now. Um, and don't worry about starting from the beginning. Just join in where we are, because in two years we'll be back here. So you would have read the whole Bible. Uh, but before we um, open this and start reading, I just want to pray. So let's just uh, let's just commit this time to the Lord. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the journey that you have taken us on from Genesis so far through to 1 Samuel. God, we have seen uh, what a God you are in, in those books. Your faithfulness, even when people weren't faithful to you. Your goodness, your power to work miracles, uh, your heart for your world and your heart to make yourself known. What a God you are. Such grace, such mercy. And Lord, we pray that as we open your word today, that by your spirit, you would reveal more of yourself to us. Amen. Great. We're going to kick off by just reading 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. And we are going to kind of um, flick through some more of it uh, as we as we go on. Uh, but I just want to talk about this one verse for a moment. OK, so there was a certain man from Ramathame. Uh, a Zophite, I have no idea if I'm saying these things properly. So, you know, bear with me on that. Uh, so a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. I just want to pause there for a second. There is a certain man, just this guy, just this certain guy. And God's about to, to use this individual to do something. And again and again throughout the Bible, we've seen it, haven't we? God chooses a certain person, that, that guy. I'm just going to take that person, that man, that woman, that child, and I'm going to work with them. And that's how God works. And it encourages me straight away because uh, that means any one of us can be used by God. Just this certain guy and, and God uses him. And, the, and this scripture here tells us that he's uh, a Zophite named Elahan, uh, son of Jer Jeroham. And uh, if we flick through to Chronicles, 1 Chronicles, you'll find some genealogies there. And you'll discover that this certain guy is actually a Levite. His descendants uh, are from the tribe. Uh, sorry, he, he is a descendant of the tribe of Levi. He's someone who was set apart to serve the Lord. And I love that as well, because if we dedicate our lives to God, he can use us. If we give it over to him, he can use us. And that's what he longs to do. Now, this verse tells us that he's an Ephraimite. And um, and we I've already said to you guys, actually, he's from the tribe of Levi. So how is he an Ephraimite? Well, the Levites, they didn't have any inheritance in the land. You might remember that from the previous kind of books that we've been reading when they moved into the promised land. All the tribes got given areas, but not the Levites. The Levites, uh, their inheritance was the Lord. And so uh, they would live with the other tribes across the promised land. 
Now, what this tells us is that this particular Levite was living within the boundaries of Ephraim, of the tribe of, of Ephraim. And um, I love that that is in there as well, because you might remember a while ago that Mike Williams preached to us uh, about Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph. And Ephraim literally means fruitfulness. And what this tells me in this verse here, it's like the author wants us to know that God chose this certain guy who'd given his life over to God so God could use him. And what God was about to do in this certain guy and through him was going to be fruitful, was going to be fruitful and produce fruit. This seemingly ordinary guy who's dedicated his life to the Lord, but who also knows messiness in his life. Because we get to the second verse and we discover he had two wives. And even though that was common in the ancient times, it's still not the way of the Lord. Um, back in Genesis, it was one man and one woman. When we get to Jesus, he, he says the same. But always when we read about this, it comes with conflict and strife. Whenever we read about someone with two wives, there's always some conflict and strife. And so this guy, he knew messiness. And yet God was going to use him and bring something fruitful out of his situation. What a God we have. I love that. We get to verse two and we discover that he's got these two wives and one of them's got children and one of them hasn't. And straight away, you can start to feel the tension, the messiness. Right. Um, but in verse one, we learn that uh, Alcana, he lives in this place called Ramathim, um, which literally means two Ramas. Um, and it is believed that Ramathim was this city. Uh, it refers to this city that was built upon two hills, the old city and the newer city, one watchtower and another watchtower, one camp and another camp. And here in verse two, we discover that he not only lives in a split city, but his life and his love is divided as well. He's got two wives. And what that tells me is this. Where you position your life, what you build your life upon will affect the shape of your life. If you build in a place that isn't at peace, you will live a life of unrest. If you build in a place that is divided, you will live a divided life. And if you build in a hopeful place, then you'll develop a hopeful character. Guys, positioning is so important. And all the way through the book of Samuel, we see various characters and stories that are juxtaposed next to each other uh, to demonstrate how different their positioning is. And as we read through some of these things, we're going to skim over some of these chapters. I just want you to pay attention to where they're positioned and the other character is positioned or where one story is positioned and the other is or where the positioning of God is in the lives of those people and in those stories. So chapter one, as we jump into it, is the story of Hannah. And right off the mark, like I said, there's this conflict and things aren't good within her three way marriage. The other wife has got children and she hasn't. And in that time, children were so important in that culture and, and she hasn't had any. She's barren and uh, she cries out to God and she cries out so much that Eli uh, at the temple, the priest, thinks that she is drunk. Um, but she says to God, if you give me children, I will dedicate my child to you. And that's what happens. She ends up becoming pregnant and she has this son called Samuel and she dedicates him to the Lord. I just want to read 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 28 to you. It says this. So now I give him to the Lord. 
That's Hannah giving Samuel to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. And then it says, and he worshipped the Lord there. Now, there's some debate around who he is in the sentence. He worshipped the Lord there. Who was it that worshipped the Lord there? And commentaries have different opinions. And you can go look this up if you like. You'll find out that different people think different things about this. Some people think that it was Samuel. He was Samuel. She gave him over and he and he worshipped the Lord there. Because Eli is mentioned in, in the verses before, but only passively in the actual text. So it's mentioned in the passive way. So the subject of the paragraph is Samuel. So the he worshipped the Lord there would be Samuel. But then other commentaries would say, well, no, it's it's Elkanah. Even though he's not specifically mentioned here, it, it suggests that uh, Samuel was too young to have worshipped the Lord. And if we jump forward to chapter two, verse 11, we discover that Elkanah, the father, uh, he was there. He was there and he went home with her after they'd taken Samuel there. So he was present, even though not mentioned. So some scholars and commentaries believe that it was Elkanah that worshipped the Lord there. Others would say that it was the whole family because the he in the Hebrew text is actually plural. So it refers to Elkanah as the head of his household, but could be translated, they worshipped the Lord there for all that he had done. Um, others would say that actually it's Eli that was uh, that worship the Lord there because he's the one who's most recently mentioned in the previous verses. It talks about Samuel, but then it talks about Eli. So verse 25, when the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli and then it carries on. And eventually we get to he worships the Lord there. So it could have been Eli giving praise for all that Hannah had done, all that God had done in her life. And now her response to God, um, however you translate it, Whoever you think the he is in that passage, I don't think it matters too much because what I see is is this. The underlying message is that when people respond in faithfulness to the faithfulness of God, it draws other people to give him praise. Whoever the he is, the, whoever they were, they praised God because of God's faithfulness to Hannah and Hannah's response in faithfulness to this faithful God incredible incredible um but that is juxtaposed next to placed next to this story of of eli and his sons see what hannah does with her son is she dedicates him to the lord and and a response of faithfulness to faithfulness leads to praise but then we've got eli who's this priest who, who should be living this life of faithfulness in response to the faithful god and drawing people to give praise yet when we get to 1 samuel chapter 2 verse 29 we read that god says this to, to eli he says why do you scorn my sacrifice why do you honor your sons more than me why do you honor your sons more than me see Han hannah's response hannah's uh how hannah dealt with her son before the Lord led people to praise. But how Eli dealt with his sons before the Lord did anything but that. In fact, it broke God's heart. Eli just let his sons run riot, do whatever they want, had no control over them. And, and he's the priest and they're his sons. And um, we see here these two stories where we position the things that are important to us 
it, it has an impact on us, on the people around us, on the world around us, on our lives. And it has an impact upon the shape of our relationship with God. The things that matter most to you, do you dedicate them to the Lord or do you let them lord it over you? See, Hannah dedicated her son to the Lord, but Eli let his sons lord it over him and over the people. And it was a a terrible, terrible story, terrible outcome, a tragic story. Throughout 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's a whole load of this going on. In Hannah's prayer, okay, we see the contrast between those who serve the Lord and those who oppose him. Uh, in, in verses 4 and 5, it, it says this, The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more she who was barren has borne seven children but she who had many sons pines away we get this story of god lifting up the humble and opposing the proud we see it as well uh, these other characters positioned next to each other in in 2 samuel uh, 1 samuel 2 verses 11 and 12 where it says that uh, the boy Samuel, he ministered before the Lord under the, Eli the priest. And then verse 12, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. These two characters, Samuel, then positioned against the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Um, we see them very differently, positioning themselves differently. One in the presence of God, serving under God, under the priest, submitting to that authority, trusting in the Lord. And then those running right and doing their own thing, positioning themselves above everybody else, even their father and the high priest. If we position ourselves under Jesus, he will raise us up. If we position ourselves under Jesus, he raises us up to new life. If we position ourselves under Jesus, he lifts our spirit and gives us joy in this life. He he raises up the humble. He exalts the humble, but brings down the proud. And if you want other passages for that, go check out Matthew 23 or Psalm 138 or Proverbs 3 or Proverbs 29. You see it again and again and again in the Bible. And we see that here as well in 1 Samuel 2 verse 30 to 36 where finally God steps in and he deals with the sons of Eli. And he says to Eli, this is what I'm going to do. But there's this one bit uh, in verse 30 that I think is really key. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honour me, I will honour. But those who despise me will be disdained. And then God goes on to say, I'm going to bring down your sons. I'm going to bring down your family line. They won't serve as priests anymore, but they'll cry out to others to be served. It's a tragic, tragic story. uh, What happens to Eli and his sons? But that's what happens when we position ourselves above God. Think about that for a moment, because he is God. But so often in our lives, we position things above him as if they can stay above him. They can't. We can't. And God eventually brings down the things that are placed above him and lifts up those that humble themselves before him. This message goes on and on throughout this book. Let's just read 1 Samuel chapter 3 from verse 1. 
The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. Under Eli, he served humbly. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called to Samuel. Do you notice the positioning of these two characters here as well? Where is Eli and where is Samuel? You see, Eli was not in the presence of God, but in his usual place, probably one of the rooms somewhere around the edge of the tabernacle, uh, a little bit like with the temple when it was finally built in the later years where the priests would stay. And you notice as well that it says this, his sight was failing him. It's not just his physical sight, but his spiritual sight. In, in, in verse one, it tells us the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There were not many visions as it, it's something that you see. OK, not just something we hear, but we think, oh, the word of the Lord, we hear it. But it was something you see. There were not many visions. That was one of the ways that God spoke many, many times in the Old Testament. And this guy is the high priest. This guy is the one who should be seeing the word of the Lord. And yet, because of his blindness, but his spiritual blindness, the word of the Lord is rare. What a sad story for the whole of Israel. This guy who was supposed to see the word of the Lord for them had weak sight. And because of that, uh, the word of the Lord was rare. He wasn't positioned in the presence of the Lord and he wasn't seeing the word of the Lord. But then we get Samuel, just this boy, just a young boy. And where's he positioned himself? In the presence of God, where the ark of God was in the house of the Lord. And then verse four, the Lord called to Samuel. God was able to speak to Samuel because he positioned himself in the house of God, in the presence of God. Church, I long for us to hear the Lord speak more and more and more because there's such a message for us and for our world. And he uses his church to share that gospel message. And so we need to, as the church, be positioning ourselves in the presence of God to hear his voice. Not in our usual place, but in his presence, in his presence. And for you in your personal lives, if you want to hear God speak, then you've got to position yourself so that you're in that place where he can speak to you. OK, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we get this story where the Israelites are defeated by the Philistines. Uh, terrible, tragic story yet again. Um, but they have this battle and they're defeated the first time. And, and you notice in chapter 4, it says, oh, the Lord has come against us. And uh, then they make this decision. Well, here's what we'll do now. We'll go back out to battle, but we'll take the Ark of the Covenant with us so that God's presence is with us. And, and then we'll beat the Philistines. Wrong. What happens is they take the Ark of the Covenant out and they actually end up defeated yet again. And the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, the hope and glory of Israel is carried off by the Philistines. Why? Well, because they position his presence in such a way that they use it as a tool. And God's presence isn't a tool for us to use. That's not how it works. And when they do that, they end up losing yet again. I wonder, have you ever done that? Have you carried out the presence of God as a tool? 
You know what you want. This is what we want. We want to have this victory. This is what needs to happen here. So I'll tell you what to do. We'll, we'll call a prayer meeting and we'll march in the presence of God. Or we'll take our Bible out and declare the word of God over that situation without even seeking him and seeing what his heart is for that situation. His presence, his power is not a tool for us to use. We need to position him in front of us and follow him not carry him out with us in the hope that he will do our will and our bidding it doesn't work like that in 1 samuel chapter 5 the philistines have taken off the ark of the covenant and they positioned it in the temple of their god dagon and, and i love this story i don't know why it's one of the stories that i really enjoy uh, reading <clears throat> almost like a ha take that dagon but they position the the ark of the covenant in the presence of dagon in in the temple of dagon the god of the philistines and as you read through 1 samuel chapter 5 what you discover is that one night the ark is there next to dagon who's probably this great big tall statue um and next to it just the ark of the covenant placed there and the philistines come into the temple the next morning and they find dagon face down just on the floor so they run over to their god and they stand him back up again and then the next morning when they come in, Dagon's face down on the floor, but not only face down on the floor, he smashed to pieces. The Lord broke down this other God that had been positioned over him. Where we place the presence of God in our lives is important. If we place it under something else, then those things will come down. We need to place them under the presence of God. God's presence needs to be exalted in our lives above everything else. I wonder when it comes to your home or your finances or your children uh, or your job, any other thing in your life. Where is the presence of God placed? Is it placed in its rightful place? exalted above all other things with everything else coming under god or have you placed it next to it as if oh this will be a good place to put god he'll be friends with this god of my life this thing in my life it won't happen like that god brings down the things that are placed above him because only he is god i'm going to wrap up with 1 samuel chapter 6 we're not going to go any further today um but as that story carries on, eventually the Philistines, they're like, we need to get this ark out of here. And they, they send it back to the Israelites. There's a story about how they do that. I want to touch on that in just a moment as we close. But um, they send it back to the Israelites. And, and initially they're like, way, the ark is back. But then the Israelites, they do this thing where they position themselves over the ark. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says this, but God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, some of the Israelites, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. They positioned themselves over the ark, over the presence of God, lifted off the lid. They had disregard for his holy presence. And, and, and it cost them. It cost them. A little bit like uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when they just marched out and did what they wanted with it. They used it for their purposes. And here again, using it for their purposes. We're going we're gonna to look inside and we're going to discern what we want and take what we want from that. 
They look at God as someone they can get something from rather than someone to honour and worship. And so as they touch the ark and take off the lid and look inside, many of them end up dying. They position God under their will rather than positioning themselves under God. And that's in contrast to the opening of 1 Samuel chapter 7, where because the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, they've been like, we, we don't want the presence of God here. So they send it on again to another place. And when it arrives in that place, what these people do is, is this. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the Ark of the Lord. And it remained there for 20 years. The Hebrew word for guard is shumah. And um, I love that it says this. They, they, they brought the ark in and the first thing they do is to, to show it honour and respect, to, 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 to honour the Lord their God. And they position someone to shumah, the ark of the Lord. Shumah can mean to guard. It can mean to watch over. It can mean to care for and to be in service of. They put someone in service of the Lord to care for, to watch over, to guard, to honour, to respect the presence of God. That's how we need to treat the presence of God in our lives. In chapter seven, they go out to battle again. But this time in verses three to 12, you can read about that. This time in stark contrast to 1 Samuel chapter four, they get the right, right way round. And rather than just carting out the Lord and saying, we want this. No, this time they call upon him and the Lord deals with their enemies. He's their savior, not a tool to be used. We need to, to treat him as he is, our God, our King and our Saviour. We can call upon him and he's faithful in that. But when we try to bend his will to our will, it just doesn't work. So let me just conclude by, by saying this. Where we position our lives matters. In this time, particularly in this time, uh, for us as a church, individuals in our church, things that they've experienced, the things going on in the world, it would be so easy to build our lives upon bitterness, upon anger and upon confusion, rather than trusting in God and building on faith, hope and love. And the position of God in our lives matters as well. Maybe you've had it wrong. Maybe at times we as a church have had it wrong. Maybe we've tried to position God to do what we think is good and needs to be done rather than letting him share with us his heart and his will and what he wants to do. Our positioning is so, so important. If we're positioned wrongly, if our foundation isn't built securely, then what's on the surface might look good, but what's underneath will be weak. And eventually it will lead to cracks that will start to show. Like with Eli and his sons compared to Samuel. And, and one Samuel carries on and does this again and again and again. And we see it with the stories of David and Saul. And we'll get to that in the coming weeks. Let me just finish by saying this. I said I'd go back to when the... Philistines returned the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord. And I just want to read you one verse from 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3 to wrap up. They've got the Ark, it's all gone horribly wrong. They want to send it back, but they're like, how do we send it back? And, and this is what someone says to them. They answered, 
1 Samuel 6 verse 3. If you return the ark to the God of Israel, do not send it back without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. They're going to return the ark. They're going to put God back in his proper place. But the advice is send it back with a guilt offering. And I want to say this to us, to all of us as a church. If there are places in our personal lives and in our corporate life as church where we haven't positioned the presence of God properly. Then praise the Lord that there is a guilt offering that has already been made for us. Jesus Jesus' death upon the cross has paid the price. We don't need to stress about a guilt offering and what do we do and how do we do that? Because Jesus has paid the price. He's poured out grace, he's poured out mercy and he's made a way. He's become our guilt offering and covered all that we've ever, ever done wrong. Every time we've got it wrong, every time we position the presence of God in the wrong place, he has made it right. And all we need to do now is put the presence of God back in his proper place in our lives. I want to encourage you this week. Take some time, pray, sit with the Lord and ask his spirit to show you where, where have I not positioned your presence properly? There will be places for all of us and for us as a church. Where have we not positioned his presence properly? And then confess that and know that as we confess he is good and he is faithful, then he forgives. He forgives. What Jesus did upon the cross was once and for all, all sin is forgiven, all guilt is covered. And once we've recognised that, let's put the presence of God back in his proper place. Let's give him the honour and respect that he is due and let's bring our lives under him. We're going to worship together now. We're going to sing Jesus Christ once again. And we're going to dwell upon that sacrifice. And as we do that, I just want to invite you to marvel at the wondrous love that he has shown us. He's covered all our guilt. He's paid for all our sin. And in that place of confidence that he has done that, be real with Jesus. Be real with our God. Be honest with him and be open to the places in our lives where we have not positioned his presence properly and then do that and then do that.